Hello, it's Caroline. I'm just here to tell you that this episode that you're about to listen to was recorded during a time when I still used Patreon. I do not use Patreon anymore, but you can find helpful resources by going to thefuckadiet.com slash more. You can also read the beginning of the Fuck a Diet book for free from my site. Lastly, this podcast is extremely messy. And it was actually intentionally messy and unstructured because that was the only way I could inspire myself to start and continue this podcast. I needed the lowest stakes possible. And though this podcast remains very low budget and has remained messy throughout the years until now, if you want slightly more structured and streamlined episodes, listen to the more recent episodes. All right, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the fuck a diet podcast i was about to say fuck a diet radio which is what it used to be called and i've decided to do weekly episodes during this quarantine without really thinking about the fact that i am actually already busier than i usually am and i don't know what i was thinking i wasn't thinking So here we are. We'll see how long that the every week thing keeps on going. But I can't believe that I'm busier than I usually am. I know that actually a lot of people are because a lot of people are trying to work from home and homeschool their children and everything else. Um, But I think because my, my whole job was already completely remote anyway. And... And now I feel like since everyone's home and everyone has to be remote, people are trying, I think there's sort of this nervousness that people have that they need to be productive or do something new and different and interesting during this time. And I totally get it. I mean, I get that that helps people's anxiety, but I, I mean, it's kind of the reason why everyone's going live on Instagram. Everyone's like, just, I don't know. But I just, I feel like a lot of people are asking me to go live with them and a lot of people want to do podcast interviews on their podcast and my podcast. And I just, I feel busier than usual. Also, right as the U.S. was going into quarantine, I got a book deal for my second book, which is super exciting. And it alleviated a lot of my kind of job anxiety um, because it's something that I really care about and it you know, such crazy timing. It was like exciting that something big like that happened during something during the world shutting down. However, now I feel now I have deadlines, which is what I wanted. But now I really, really need to be working on the book every day. Um, And so that is taking up a lot of time. And then also, also, I was planning on running the Fuck a Diet book club in May and June and enrolling it the second half of April. And I haven't known whether that's a good idea anymore because I I didn't know whether people really weren't in a place to be, you know, paying for a program and doing an online program or whether maybe it was a great thing. So I was kind of going back and forth and putting off doing the prep work for that, getting it all set up. Um, 
And now that I have decided to actually, I was wondering whether I should push it back to the fall, but I have decided that I am going to run it in May and June, like I was previously planning and enrolling in April. And uh, so now I have to do that too. So I, I don't know, I just feel busier than usual. And I'm like, oh my God, another podcast episode. <laughs> Come on on Monday, what? Um, so it's Saturday. I'm working on this. And it's raining outside, so Molly and I can't even go on any walks. And so if she comes to bother me during this recording, you know why. Um, today, we have a long-awaited episode about diabetes. And I am talking to, I'm going to share my chat with Lauren Newman, who is a registered and licensed dietitian who specializes in diabetes and disordered eating. We had this conversation back in the beginning of February, so it was all pre-coronavirus and pre-quarantine, so there will be no references to it. Um, But we talk about a lot of the unhelpful and stigmatizing myths around diabetes and it'll be a great listen whether you have diabetes and are finding that it's leading to disordered behaviors and curious if diabetes works with intuitive eating or it'll be good for you if you're just generally nervous about getting diabetes. So I'm excited to have you guys listen to that. That'll be later in the episode. First... I just want to tell you, okay, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, I already talked about how I want to run, I'm going to run the Fuck a Diet Book Club. It's going to start May 11th. It's going to end July 5th. So really like May and June and then the very beginning of July. And it's going to be a group of the new members that join plus the alums who have already gone through it. And we're going to be together in a... It's like a it's like a Facebook group, but it's not on Facebook. It's on Mighty Networks, and so people get to chat with each other and post and ask questions and respond to each other. Um, and we go through the book in eight weeks, and every week there is also a live Q and A call with me. And you can be live on the call and ask questions live, or you can submit questions ahead of time and watch the replay. You can check out the details at thefuckadiet.com/club. And I will also be sharing more details closer to enrollment. I am also going to be releasing a new free workshop for people who've read the book focused on exploring the five tools. And I will be answering your submitted questions. And this is the way that it works. If you want to be sent this workshop when it is ready and available on April 17th, because I'm not going to be doing it live, I'm going to be recording it by myself, and then releasing it. I'm going to release it on April 17th, 2020. Go to com slash resources and sign up for the book bonuses if you have not already. If you have already, you should have received an email prompting you to submit questions for the workshop. Um, and it, when you sign up, you also get an email prompting you to submit questions for the workshop. And also it gives you all the book bonuses, the resource list, the prompts from the book, and also replay of the old workshop that I did last year. And you have until April 10th to submit questions for the workshop. And 
this is just my gift to people who have read the book, people who have signed up for the book bonuses. I am doing this workshop for you that's specifically geared to the five tools from the book, answering some of your questions, some of the most frequently asked questions from people who have read the book. And yeah, so if you want to check that out, just go to thefuckadiet.com slash resources. It's free. If you haven't read the book, it's not for you. You'll be confused. You'll be, you'll have a way better time if you just read or listen to the book. That's the first step I recommend to everybody. Okay, so that is my housekeeping. Um, I would like to next share some of the emails that I've gotten from listeners who have shared some silver linings of this quarantine. I'm constantly looking for the bright side because I know that this is a horrible time for so many people. Um, I, I also know that people, some people are are truly able to enjoy this time as a time of rest, but I know that a lot of people really aren't able to. So I do want to share some of the more positive experiences to see if it could be maybe inspiring and calming for you. Okay, so, uh, uh, oh shoot, I'm looking at my notes. I made notes. Okay, um, I made notes on the TV shows that I'm listening to, but I guess I'll share that later. So these quarantine silver linings are sent in by listeners like you. So if you want to send a quarantine silver lining story or just a fuck a diet success story that you think would be inspiring to the people who listen to this podcast, who maybe are in the beginning of the journey or scared to even start the journey, you can send them to podcast at carolineduner.com and I will try and read it on an upcoming episode. Okay, so here's the first email. And this email is from... Holly. Quarantine came and I found it to be the most freeing situation I've ever been in. Not being allowed to go to the gym has allowed me to let go of the belief that I have to go every day. Now that I'm not in control of access to the gym, I'm moving my body in fun ways that I enjoy without any external pressure. I'm also not feeling forced to work harder than anyone else because I'm working out completely alone. Also, the idea of true food freedom has never felt more real than it does right now. I have loads of quote-unquote junk at my house that I'm actually able to forget about or otherwise not feel compelled to eat. I finally am starting to believe that I can have them anytime I want. So when I want them, I enjoy them. When I don't want them, I leave them alone without feeling the old white-knuckle struggle. This entire experience has been enlightening for me. I am loving my time in quarantine. I know it won't be forever, but I'm hopeful that the positive changes I'm seeing will be. I'm hopeful that once gyms open back up and restaurants are back running as normal, I can still be gentle with myself and honor my body's messages. Two weeks isn't a lifetime, but it is long enough for some change. So while many have lost so much to this and my heart breaks for them, I choose to focus on what this break from my eating disorder has given me. Holly. And another one, this one is short and sweet. It, and it's also from March 21st, which was a week ago. So the situation might have changed in Australia. Australia. She said, we are not at full quarantine in Australia, currently social distancing. Again, I don't know if that's changed since. But I shared what you and others have said about stress and comfort eating being okay, normal, and to be expected with my sister. A few days later, she called back and said thank you, that it had been very validating and helpful to hear that. Jocelyn in, in Melbourne. Well, 
That's great. Okay, here's the next email. Your dry and sarcastic stories are giving me life right now while also keeping me grounded. So that's neat. Yes, that is neat. Thank you. Um, I don't know if this helps meet your inspiration quota, but I've struggled with disordered eating since I was in kindergarten. I'm 26 now. I found the fuck a diet this January, and since then I have gone through the one. So she's going through the phases. First phase. One. Holy shit, I'm so hungry. Let's eat all of this great food phase. Two, oh my god, I can have as much food as I want forever phase. Three, shit, I gained a bunch of weight phase. Four, okay, cool, I gained weight, that's fine phase. Five, now I'm stuck in quarantine and I have tons of, I have tons of food around me and everything is fine. And I'm eating half a pint of Ben and Jerry's per day. And yeah, I've gone up a pant size and I'm the happiest and safest I've ever been. And thank God for you and your infinite... (laughs) Wait, this is funny. Your infinite new age wisdom. I do have infinite (laughs) new age wisdom. Um, I know this is dramatic, but thank you for saving the rest of my life. Oh, so much love, Nikki. Okay, thank you, Nikki. I also, I read that one because I really like just the very, very, very simple breakdown of the phases. And if you think about it, she's been she just started doing this in January right so the fact that she's already gone through those phases of course this is very important for me to always say that everyone has a different timeline but this is a possible timeline that from January to the end of March you could be stuck in quarantine with tons of food around you and not feel totally scared and miserable and out of control around it Um, so hopefully that is inspiring for you to hear. Next one. Oh, I really, I honestly, I think I planned on doing too many. I think I planned on doing too many. So this is what I think I'm going to do. I think I'm going to read a couple more and then I'll share my conversation with Lauren about diabetes and disordered eating. And then maybe I'll do a couple at the end when I tell you about the TV shows that I've, that I've been watching. Oh my God. Tiger King. Okay. Here's the last one I'm going to read for now. My fuck it diet quarantine win has just been embracing the situation, taking measures to keep others safe and not beating myself up for resting. I can now enjoy my shows while eating lobster tails on the couch. That sounds nice. Okay, back to the email. Uh, I can now enjoy my shows while eating lobster tails on the couch or eat at 12 a.m. because I was hungry and not feel bad for it. I've really been treating my body with kindness and exercising because I want to move and not because I think I'm going to lose all my muscle mass in one week. We'll never forget when I was forcing myself to do sit-ups on the bed while on vacation or crying on the treadmill. Thinking back to these times, I have really, really changed. I thought I would be tempted to control every aspect of my body during this isolated time, but I'm very calm. I feel more recovered than I ever have, to be honest. Trusting my body is great. Best, Susan. Um, Okay, I, I will read more after my conversation with Lauren. But before that, I want to talk to you about BetterHelp. BetterHelp is this podcast sponsor and BetterHelp is online counseling. So if you've been wanting to go to therapy for the first time, or find a new therapist but feel daunted by finding a therapist in the middle of a global pandemic, 
you can try better help. You can get help on your own time at your own pace with a licensed counselor that is chosen for your specific needs. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions. Plus you have unlimited access to chat and text with your therapist, which is not the usual situation. So I would really take advantage of that if you can during this time. You can get therapy in the comfort of your own home, which really, I guess at this point, our homes are, we're over our homes. We have no choice. It is the safest solution right now. The best part is, and this is really important, I think, if you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time. No additional charge. Sometimes it takes a little bit to find the right therapist for you. So the fact that they are aware of this and let you switch it up is really important. BetterHelp is affordable, it is convenient, it is secure, and financial aid is available to those who qualify. If you have been thinking of going to therapy or finding a new therapist, this is one of the easiest ways to get the help you deserve while staying safe in your home. It is truly an affordable option for therapy. Plus, you, my listener, get 10% off your first month with the discount code TFID, the fuck it diet, TFID. Go to betterhelp.com slash TFID. You simply quit, you simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs. And I recommend you put in the notes that you would like a health at every size informed practitioner and you will get matched with a counselor and start communicating in under 24 hours. That is betterhelp.com slash TFID. Go get your therapy. And now, Without further ado, here is my conversation with Lauren Newman about diabetes and disordered eating. So how did you find intuitive eating and haze in the first place? It was before nutrition school or during? It was during. It was through like one of my dietitian mentors that um, was like another dietitian in the community that I really look up to and respect. And I was very resistant to it at first. She kept kind of pushing it towards me. And I was like, no, this is total bullshit. And um, honestly, I started looking into some of the research around it with the intention to like prove her wrong. Um, We would have (laughs) these like conversations where she would be like, no, but like this and like explain it to me in like a really logical way that totally made sense. But I was like, but that can't be right. Like, that's not what I'm learning in school. That's not what like anything says. That's not like, you know, and when I, I, when I initially started, um, like in school as a dietitian, I was kind of going at it from the perspective of like the like obesity epidemic and all of the like kids and whatever, and all of that kind of language and all of that mentality. And so it didn't really like fit with what I felt like was important and what I was learning in classes and what I was writing about and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was really, I was very against it in the beginning and through the process of kind of like, I wouldn't call it debating, but kind of debating this with her. Uh, I started actually looking at the research around it and we would have these conversations where I, we would just kind of go in circles and I would realize that I was arguing against my own point by the end of it. And so (laughs) I, um, you know, at that point I was like, all right, maybe I need to look into this a little bit more and actually uh, change my thinking a little bit. That's kind of great though. I mean, I feel like I feel like the people who can explain this the best are the people who can understand the skepticism and can kind of speak to that, who've 
who've been there, which I guess is most people because we're all kind of coming at all of this from from diet culture. But um, but I think that that's an asset that you know how people's brains work when they're like, no, this can't be right. You know? Yeah, totally. I agree with that. I think there's so many people that, I mean, all of us, right? We grow up in this culture and usually when we're like drawn to nutrition or health or something, there's some reason for it and something that's kind of going awry that's kind of driving our attention towards it. And I think that, yeah, there's just a lot of perspective there that's important to have when we're like having these conversations with people that are feeling kind of skeptical. Yeah. So did you, did you go into nutrition um, with your own experience of disordered eating or was it a little bit? Oh, I totally went into, into this, like into this degree with my history of disordered eating and an eating disorder. I think a lot of what actually like drew me towards nutrition was the fact that my brain was really malnourished and I could not stop thinking about food. And so I was like, all right, I guess I'll study it too. Right. <laughs> I feel like and, I hear that a lot. Yeah. I think it's way more common than we realize. I know. Um, so I'd love to start talking about some big myths with <laughs> diabetes, essentially. Can you take us through some of the biggest myths that you see with diabetes and disordered eating? Gosh, where do we even start? There's too Should many. we start with sugar? Sure. Let's, let's <laughs> go there. Yeah. Um, I think there's totally a lot of myths around sugar. There's a lot of, um, there's kind of two sides of it. I think there's some people that believe that, you know, sugar causes people to get diabetes. And then there's another myth around people believing that like once you have diabetes, you can't eat sugar. And so both of those things are entirely false. Um, we know that there are so, so many factors that contribute to somebody developing diabetes, genetics being the largest factor in that. Um, and it's really such a small percentage of like what you actually do, like your own personal behaviors around it that contribute to somebody developing diabetes or not. Yeah. Um, that's a really, I think that's a really hard thing for people to wrap their head around. And I think there's so much in the way that our society talks about chronic illness like this, that just kind of put that responsibility onto the person as if it's like their fault and they did something wrong. And I think it's a lot easier for us to kind of wrap our heads around that. And it makes it feel like we're more in control of things and these outcomes and kind of what's going on in our life and in our body when we think about it that way. And so I think that's kind of part of why this myth continues to get perpetuated. And it's also just not true. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is the biggest place where people place blame is diabetes. There's this assumption that you have caused your own diabetes and it's all your fault. And then I see this play out as well in people that like are just have disordered eating without diabetes or anything like that. There's this fear of like, well, I need to make sure that I don't eat sugar. And there's this massive fear in our society around it because people are so terrified that they're, they're going to get diabetes. And so I think that speaks so much to a lot of the healthism within our culture right now in our society. And then also kind of feeds into the problem because one of the things that we know does actually contribute to insulin resistance, which is a factor that contributes to diabetes is weight cycling. And right. so when we're constantly like 
on a diet and off a diet and our weight's going up and down and all over the place, that does, that's not harmless, right? That does, puts a lot of stress on our body. And one of the side effects of that is insulin resistance. And it's, you know, it's almost like this fear of food and fear of sugar and fear of carbs is contributing to a lot of issues in general. And so that's, just a really frustrating myth because I feel like it plays out in so many ways that it does such a detriment to everybody's relationship with food. Like it actually does the very thing that we think we're like safeguarding ourselves from. Yeah. And all the, yeah, the weight stigma and just like the, the health effects of like chronic stress. Yeah. So what are, so I'm curious to um, to hear a little bit about what you see as some of the disordered behaviors that become justified in people's heads when they have diabetes or even pre-diabetes, which I know is kind of like a, a buzzword. So in the, the way I like to think about it sometimes is, you know, in the, in the health at every size community, we often have this phrase of like, well, why are we prescribing to fat people what we diagnose as an eating disorder mm-hmm. and thin people? Yeah. And it's almost like the same kind of thing that's happening with diabetes. Like if we saw any of these behaviors in somebody without diabetes, we would call it an eating disorder. Right. But when somebody has this diagnosis, that's kind of what we're telling them to do. And so there's all of this like push towards like low carb or no carb or keto or whatever diet is out there, intermittent fasting, all sorts of things that like are really disordered behaviors around food. Mm -hmm. And there's also just a lot of fear that's put into people, kind of what we've been talking about. Um, It's just the way in which our medical field and our society at large talks about diabetes just places a lot of fear around just the complications of it and not to undermine the fact that like there are serious complications from chronic illness, of course. Um, However, I think that it's sometimes blown out of proportion a little bit and Mm -hmm. makes people really, really fearful around food, which then creates a really not great dynamic around eating and taking care of yourself. And then there's a lot of fear of medication as well, um, which is similar to kind of like the the stigma that exists around mental health medication as well. Right. Like you should be able to heal this with vitamins or something. (laughs) Like you should be able to heal this by like eating a certain way or all of that kind of stuff showing up. And then there's usually a big push towards movement that can easily overstep into a really disordered place or a really stressful place. And then again, we get back to this conversation of chronic stress and right. all of the effects of that. And, you know, it just gets really messy really quickly. I think there's a lot of what I've heard from my clients, and I hear this all the time, is people stuck in this mentality of, you know, I feel like this is some like Pinterest quote in like the like diet world somewhere of like everything you eat is like hurting you or harming you. And that's really the mentality that I see a lot of my clients stuck in. And talk about stress. I mean, what's more stressful than that? Right. Like every feeling like every decision you make is life or death. Like that is so stressful. Yeah, no, that all makes so much sense. So in the difference between, um, so for anybody who's listening, I'm assuming that most people, if not all people who are listening, know what diabetes is, 
and most probably know the difference between type one and type two, but could you just go through that just in case anybody isn't quite sure on the difference there? Absolutely. I actually think that there's a lot of people that don't know the difference okay, <laughs> at great. all. Um, and off, I just also want to clarify that like, oftentimes when I talk about these kind of issues, I just use the word diabetes interchangeably because so many of these issues exist across the diabetes spectrum. And, and that was my why. next question. Actually, yeah. once you explained, mm -hmm. I wanted to know if there was a, diff a subtle difference in the way that you talk about yeah. or address either, but we'll get there. So let's we'll talk get about there. the difference. First. Yeah. So I usually just use that term interchangeably, but there are a lot of different ty types of diabetes. There's actually more than just two, but mm. the two main ones are type one and type two. So type one is an autoimmune disorder. And what happens is like with all autoimmune disorders, um, there's something that kind of goes awry in the immune system and the immune system starts to recognize an organ or a part of the body as not being a part of the body and mm. it starts to attack it. So with type one diabetes, the immune system will attack the pancreas and specifically the beta cells of the pancreas, which is the part of your pancreas that makes insulin. And so with type 1 diabetes, we have a lack of insulin or no insulin production. Mm -hmm. So with that, we have somebody who needs to be taking insulin all the time in order to um, make sure that their body is going to be able to handle the carbohydrates that it ingests. Mm -hmm. With type 2 diabetes, it's kind of like on the other side of it. So the pancreas is still making insulin, but it doesn't really, the insulin that is produced and the cells that have to use it don't really know how to talk to each other very well. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we call insulin resistance. It's where the insulin and the cells can't communicate very well. And so um, there's an issue with utilizing the insulin that exists. And so that can lead to the person's pancreas having to like overproduce insulin to try and make sure that there's enough that's able to communicate. Um, it's like almost like you have to scream louder in order to keep communicating. Right. Um, and so that can really cause some stress on the pancreas when it's kind of yelling all the time mm -hmm. and overproducing that insulin. And so can eventually lead to the point where those beta cells are really just burnt out and can't keep producing insulin. And so it can start to look similar to type one in that way at some point. See, I never uh, knew that actually. So in, in the yeah. beginning, is it just like insulin sensitizing mm -hmm. drugs? For yeah. So oh, in the beginning, okay. a lot of the medications that we utilize are going to help that communication resolve between the insulin and the cells. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it can progress to the point where the pancreas is not able to produce any more insulin on its own or enough insulin on its own to keep up with what's happening in the body. And so that's the point where somebody with type 2 would probably need to start utilizing some insulin as a medication. So what is the difference between just plain insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes? It's kind of a subjective thing. Um, technically, in the medical fields, we have like thresholds and cutoffs of mm -hmm. certain numbers that like once it hits a certain number, we call it pre-diabetes. Once it hits a different number, we call it diabetes. Gotcha. Um, it, it's a little bit subjective because these are like numbers that were, you know, determined by humans. And, right, right, right. Um, sure. Yeah. And yeah, so that's kind of how we determine it. Um, Honestly, I, I think that the best way to look at that is to kind of understand what 
your body typically does to begin with, because some people's bodies are just a little bit more sensitive or a little bit more resistant to insulin to begin with. And so somebody's number might look slightly elevated, but that could just be how their body is. That could be related to like a temporary situation within the body that's causing some kind of stress or some kind of just dysregulation in the body that is leading to an elevated blood sugar or elevated insulin levels. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it that it's from diabetes or that it's going to become like full-blown diabetes. There right. is a lot of things that can contribute to that insulin resistance. It's really fascinating. I mean, I was diagnosed with PCOS when I was in high school. So mm-hmm. I had this like obsession with yeah insulin resistance. I was on metformin. I now just like, don't, I mean, I think I have PCOS, but I don't think it's like super insulin resistance, but like, I totally understand. And it's so, there's so much fear mongering. Right. And I was a teenager who was super, super stressed out. And there are so many things that were probably going on, but of course I became obsessed with dieting and with sugar and with low carb and with not gaining weight, you know? Yeah. Actually, one of the really interesting things about PCOS that some of the newer research is showing is that the reason for like insulin resistance in PCOS, and tell me if I'm talking like a little bit too sciencey because I can easily nerd out over all oh, of Oh, I want to hear all of this. But um, I mean, there's a lot of different things that can cause insulin resistance, right? Mm-hmm. So some of that can just be genetic. Some of that can just be how somebody's body is. Some of it can be a response to certain other like hormones in the body that are kind of like out of balance or out of whack from a variety of different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that the newer research on PCOS is showing is that when our, so in our bodies, when our insulin is trying to kind of like talk to ourselves. I kind of use that language a lot, but there's another way that we talk about it sometimes as if the cells have like a door that needs to open Mm -hmm. to let the glucose in. And so Mm -hmm. the insulin is the key that unlocks the door. Um, So in our bodies, there's also something called second messengers. And those second messengers are kind of, if you imagine that key unlocking the door, the second messengers would be like the hand holding the key to turn it in the lock. Um, and with, and so like you can't unlock the door without those second messengers to turn the key and like actually open it. And with PCOS, we see a deficiency in some of those specific second messengers no called inositols. And so that's why, mm-hmm. and so that's oh. why those inositol supplements or, um, avocetol is kind of the brand that has like the right ratio to help with PCOS. That's why those supplements are so effective in PCOS. And I, I talked to Julie Duffy Dillon a couple yeah. episodes back and that was, it's one of the things she talks about. She said, there are drugs and you can also try inositol supplements, which can mm-hmm. really help for insulin. Yeah. Julie is brilliant on everything. PCOS. So great. I, this is, I know that people are going to absolutely love hearing this because it just puts things into context in a way that like helps you understand what the hell's going on mm-hmm. in your body and with all the fear mongering, you know? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I always find that science to be so grounding and so helpful to understand. So helpful. It's so, so helpful. Um, So you were, you were saying that you like to just say diabetes as opposed to differentiating because Mm -hmm. there's so much overlap in. I mean, I just think there's so much overlap in the behaviors that come out of um, having either any of like any kind of diabetes diagnosis. There's so many disordered things that come from it. And, um, it's almost like with eating disorders, how we 
I mean, some people specify like, oh, like with anorexia, we do this or with like binge eating disorder, we do this. But I think it's more helpful to kind of leave the diagnosis out of it and just say like, well, with restriction, we do this. Right. right? Because no matter what the diagnosis is, like it's still, it doesn't really matter. There's still yeah. kind of a problem there with that behavior, with that like relationship with food. And so I think that so there's so many overlaps between the types of disordered things that come up for people around food and around movement and their bodies and all of that when they have any kind of diabetes. And so usually when I'm talking publicly about things, I, cause I have a lot of like people that follow me online or that I speak to in conferences and on podcasts and all, all types of things. And, um, if I, some of them have type one, some have type two, some have other kinds of diabetes that exist. And mm-hmm. there is, it doesn't really matter what it is. The behaviors and the the things that people are struggling with are so similar. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess let's, let's pretend that right now we're talking to some people who are listening, who have diabetes or who have recently been diagnosed with diabetes and are also trying to figure out how, if, and how they can, you know, embrace intuitive eating while also taking care of themselves. Are there any myths or specific things that you would want to say to them? I guess the biggest myth I would want to address is that the idea that you can't eat carbs or sugar, Mm -hmm. um, our bodies still need carbs, even Mm -hmm. if you have diabetes, like that is just a fact of life that our brains only really function on carbs, that our bodies need them for energy. Like that doesn't disappear just because you are diagnosed with diabetes, you know? Right. And in a weird, I mean, in a way, isn't it kind, isn't the problem kind of that your body isn't getting like that the carbs Mm -hmm. aren't like getting into your cells. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so I guess the other thing about that is that when we're restricting something, right, our cravings for it are just going to shoot through the roof because it's off limits and we're kind of putting it off to the side on a pedestal and elevating it in that way. But then also when you have diabetes and like your cells aren't able to get that sugar that they need because it's not able to get inside of the cells, um, our cells don't know that there's sugar in our bloodstream. Like they just don't, they're not smart enough to know that. And so they're just going to keep thinking that, holy shit, we're starving. We need energy. And so your cells are going to keep sending signals to your brain saying, eat food, eat carbs, eat fast acting carbs, because we need that quickly because we don't have any right now. And so when your blood sugar starts getting pretty high because it hasn't been getting into your cells, your cravings for carbs biologically are going to shoot through the freaking roof. And that is absolutely not your fault. That is entirely a biological process that is just naturally going to happen. It's your body's way of trying to keep you alive. And it doesn't really know that there's already carbs and already glucose in your bloodstream. And so you combine that with the desire to restrict carbs And that's going to make you feel completely out of control around them and make you feel so just disoriented and really scary. And then when we have like somebody restricting any kind of food, that kind of feeds into this restrict binge cycle, Mm -hmm. which then when you finally do eat the carbs, you're going to give into that craving and you're going to eat 
probably way more than you actually wanted or needed. Right. And that's just when you have diabetes, it's going to shoot your blood sugar through the roof because your body's not going to be able to keep up with it as quickly. And that then is going to keep making you feel because then your blood sugar is going to be high. It's going to keep making you feel like you want carbs even more because right. again, cells are going to keep sending those signals to your brain. So basically, yeah, it's like, you know, the standard binge, you know, repent yo-yo, mm-hmm. but just even more extreme because of the yes. other things that are going on. Even more intensified because it's not even just mental. It's also very physiological. Right. 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 And then when you have somebody who is like taking insulin on top of that. So whether that's type one, type two, any other kind of diabetes where insulin is a part of their medication regimen, um, we dose insulin based on the number of carbs that you're eating. Mm -hmm. And it can be, I often find that my clients, when they get into this pattern and they are binging on carbs or even just overeating, there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes around it, which then can make them feel really disconnected from it. Like they're not super aware of how much they actually ate. Maybe they're overestimating it in their head because they feel so guilty and shameful about it. They're like, oh my God, I ate the entire box of this. And in reality, it was only like a couple handfuls of something. Or maybe on the other end, they're like, I'm not willing to admit how much I actually ate and say like it was just a handful when really it was the hot box. And no judgment or shame around that either way, but that just gets really complicated when you're trying to dose vacation for it. And then you wind up in this really weird yo-yo pattern with the the medication as well, because if you underdose your insulin, then your blood sugar is going to stay high. Or if you overdose it, then you're going to need to your blood sugar is going to go low and you're going to need to eat more carbs to bring it back up, which then can make it feel even more out of control. So it becomes like this disordered little game that you start to play, like this mental game. Totally. One of the biggest questions that I get is, is a question about diabetes. And it's either someone saying, I can't learn to eat intuitively, or I can't stop dieting because I have diabetes. Mm-hmm. Or it's somebody saying, I can't stop dieting because I'm going to get diabetes or I'm a, like, isn't that how people get diabetes? Like that's, mm-hmm. it's just constant. So now I want to ask, what would you say to the people who are listening, who have this fear or who have had this fear for a while about eating a lot of food or eating a lot of carbs, which is something that I, I encourage people to do in the beginning when they're, you know, stepping out of the yo-yo and they're kind of like that pendulum swing happens and you're really, really Mm -hmm. hungry. And so many people are so petrified to give into that because they're afraid of diabetes. So what would you say for the people listening who have this big fear that eating what their body craves is going to give them diabetes? I mean, I would encourage them to kind of think about this idea of correlation and causation. Um, there's a lot of fear mongering in our society around this and a lot of um, noise and that can be really hard to tune out and to try and embrace kind of like what you and I talk about all the time. Um, But I think it's important for us to know that there is a difference between correlation and causation. And so nobody in like the health at every size world or intuitive eating world world or whatever other label we put on this kind of work um, 
nobody is denying the fact that like there is a relationship between certain things, right? right? There is a relationship that we see in research between like larger bodies and diabetes, for example. However, I think we need to look at that with a more nuanced perspective and understand Mm -hmm. that correlation means that there's a relationship between something and causation means that one thing directly causes the other. And so, so the example that I always give is, did you know that there is a correlation between an increase in ice cream cream sales and an increase in drowning? (laughs) Why do you think that there is a relationship between those two things? Right. Because it's at the pool. Because it's at the pool or because it's in the summer or maybe like based on the location. Cause like down here in Texas, like we can probably swim more (laughs) times during the year than in in Pennsylvania, but um, we also probably have more ice cream because it's naturally warmer here, right? right. Like, there's so many different things that could contribute to that. And I, so that I can't mean- be- right now. I'm like in a shame spiral that I said <laughs> that I said at the pool and didn't say because it's. I mean, no, but like that's part of it, right? Like that's totally a, like a a, var- a variable, right. in there. and either way, it doesn't mean that. Like right. if you, if you eat ice cream, you're going to drown. <laughs> right. And it doesn't mean that if somebody drowned, it's because they ate ice cream. Right. Right. And so that's the difference between correlation and causation. So we can easily look at this research and jump to the conclusion of like, well, okay, well, if there's, if you are in a larger body or if you gain weight, then you're going to get diabetes. Okay. That's like saying that anybody who drowned is because they ate ice cream. Right. Right kind of the equivalent of that. So what we can really do is start to look at all of the other confounding variables there. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, what do we usually tell people in larger bodies? You need to lose weight. You need to diet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then they get stuck in this like yo-yo dieting pattern and their weight cycling all over the place. And we know that that increases insulin resistance. And maybe that's leading to them getting diabetes. Maybe it's not because of them being in a larger body. Maybe it's because of the weight cycling that's happening. Maybe it's because of the stress of being in a larger body. Maybe it's because of so many other variables. And also when we look at that research, there's a whole set of studies from a while back. I'm trying to remember exactly what year these studies were done, but I find them super fascinating because essentially what these researchers did is they said, okay, cool. Well, if it's because people are fat, then let's just do some liposuction and take all the fat out of their body. And then will these diseases resolve? And of course they didn't, right? right? Because it's not about the weight itself. It's about all of the other kind of like factors and variables going on in our body that might be associated with that. Right. Or even causing weight gain or a higher weight set point or whatever. Exactly. And so you can't just take like the fat out of somebody's body and make those conditions go away. And so if it really were causation, then that's what would happen when we just liposuction the fat out of somebody's body. Right. And I mean, diabetes, you know, isn't, does not just occur in larger bodies. It also occurs. In, exactly. Yeah. It occurs in all size bodies. And so, I mean, what do you say to somebody in a smaller body when they get diagnosed with diabetes? Like, oh, you need to lose weight? No, we wouldn't say that because that's not, that clearly wasn't part of it. And so how can other people, you know, like how can other people be getting diabetes when 
their weight isn't higher or they're not in a larger body. Like there has to be some other reason behind it. So it's not just about weight. I feel like this is something that health at every size and body respect there. Those books are really good at kind of explaining this correlation causation thing, but because of the culture we live in it, it's hard to, to always like remember that, you know? Oh, totally. I mean, that's not what we're surrounded by all the time, unless you like are really intentionally tuning out everything like that. And even still, it's not possible to do that. Right. I know. Lauren, thank you so much. Where can everybody find you online? Um, So I'm on Instagram. I don't really do any other (laughs) social media. Uh, My Instagram is go feed yourself. And I'm also, you can look at my website. It's laurennewmanrd.com. And I'll put the links in the show notes so everyone can go follow along. Awesome. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. This was so great. You can find links to follow Lauren on Instagram and also find her website in the show notes for this episode. So just click on those and you can find her. And I do recommend that you look back through her Instagram because she has so many amazing posts that I think people with and without diabetes will benefit from. They're very aligned with intuitive eating and health at every size. And I just love a lot of the things that she's posted. So definitely check that out. Okay, let me keep reading some of these listener emails that people sent in Um, and then I'll tell you what I've been watching during this strange time okay so the next email is from Ida or Ida in the Netherlands Uh, a week ago I went on a full hoarding mood and got a lot of groceries now I actually have a lot of food at home normally I buy food for max two days Oh boy, does it bring me joy. One day, made broccoli zucchini soup for lunch and later a chocolate cake for dinner. Ooh, a chocolate cake for dinner, yum. (laughs) Today I had chicken nuggets for dinner, only chicken nuggets, nothing else. Now I'm lacking a clear routine. Now that I'm lacking a clear routine, it's easier to truly listen to my body and what it needs. Before the fuck it diet, I would have felt guilty for eating all of this. Now, under these extremely strange circumstances, I'm happy I don't have additional negative emotions related to food. I already feel anxious enough about everything else in this situation. Let the food be my savior. Please give Molly a good rub for me. She's the best. Yes, she is. From Ida or Ida in the Netherlands. Um, Next email. This is another very short one. I have a big family, five kids, oldest 17, youngest seven. Every night after dinner, oh my God, I want to cry. This is so crazy. Every night after dinner, since we've been in isolation, they pull out a game and play for an hour or two. Uno, Family Feud, Monopoly, etc. They help the little one and laugh until they're ready for bed. It is so lovely. Celeste from Tucson. That one has nothing to do with the fuck it diet, but it's just such a simple encapsulation of one of the silver linings that people are spending time together and I know that not everyone is in a good situation but I still want to be able to talk about some of the silver linings of this very strange and stressful time Um, next one Misty said the pasta aisles here in California have been sold out for two weeks now as well as the rice I'm glad to see so many people finally making peace with carbs. 
Also, the salad dressing aisle is oddly well-stocked. Maybe people are eating less salads and more spaghetti. Either way you look at it, carbs save the day. Hashtag carbs win. Thank you for all you do. Your book is the reason I'm totally okay with the food situation right now. Well wishes, Misty. I love it. Next one. I was anxious about the whole pandemic as well as being alone. I won't say that the first week wasn't a bit of a challenge mentally, allowing myself not to overcompensate or feel guilty or not about not being productive enough. But all of the unpredictability, loneliness, anxiety, and fear did not lead to binging, but it led to a loss of appetite for me, which I would have not imagined a year earlier. And I fed myself anyway. This is the part that I am most proud of. Almost two weeks into my social social isolation, and I still don't have a normal appetite, so I have to take care of myself more consciously now. I'm also not really productive, but, you know, fuck it. I deeply, <laughs> yay, I deeply appreciate your work. I wouldn't be where I am right now and where I will be without it. Please correct my English if needed. Haven't used it in a long time. That was pretty good, Claudia. Best wishes, Claudia from Hungary. It was good. It was good. All right, next one. Caroline. Wait, really? Caroline, my name is Emily, and I was a chronic dieter and white cycler for about five years. Just four months ago, I was binging at least four times a day and doing insane things to try and keep my weight down, but I was so hungry all the time. I've been on the fuck it diet about three months, so I'm new. I've gained a good amount of weight, cut way back on exercise, bought new clothes, all those pretty normal fuck it diet things. California just ordered us to shelter in place and I live alone and can no longer work. Boredom and loneliness used to send me to the day old bakery shelf every single day without fail. I've been alone in my house for most of the past week and I have had zero desire to binge. I know I will probably gain some weight because I will be less active during this time, but that seems perfectly normal. And if I gain weight during this time, then my weight will probably go back to what it was when this is over. Either way, who cares? I don't know how I would have survived this had this happened a year ago when I was at the gym four times a day or going to multiple grocery stores every day for binge food. Now I have freedom that I didn't know was possible. Thank you for showing me this path and maybe saving my life. I don't know who that's from. I didn't do a good job um, taking it down because I copied and pasted these. But whoever sent that in, thank you. All right, and there's just one more. And I know there are more. People have sent in more, but I will share them on a later episode. And if you have anything, please, again, send it to podcast at carolineduner.com. Okay. I started the Fuck It Diet book and stopped restricting my eating last October, but had not completely finished it until tonight. The energy work in your book that I did tonight brought up so much for me that I didn't realize I needed because I told myself I'd already talked about aspect X, Y, and Z of my eating disorder. Despite how fat positive I had told myself I'd become in recent years, I'd never fully allowed myself to know that I could gain weight and be happy. It completely struck me to read the phrase, being skinny will make me happy. That is a limiting belief from the book. 
so plainly written down in your book's limiting belief list. I don't know why I decided to explain that when she explained it already in her thing. Okay. It's something I thought I knew and had acknowledged and was too smart to believe anymore, but I hadn't really let go of that belief. It was still an underlying thing that I held on to, making myself subconsciously think things like, well, maybe if I were thinner, I could effortlessly enjoy the warm weather in a flowy dress, etc., etc. So thank you for also saying that this is a different journey for everyone on no set time limit. There have been serious downs, but also many, many serious ups. And I can't wait to see where this takes me. So the reason that I read that is because, you know, I don't talk about it all the time on this podcast, but one of the really big pieces of how I explain this journey and a big part of my book is the work on limiting beliefs and the energy work and the difference between knowing something logically in your head and actually processing old stuff in your body. And that is the purpose of the emotional work and the energy work. That's the same thing. Emotional work and energy work are the same thing. But um, that is the purpose of the emotional work from the book. So again, if you have read it but sort of skipped over that part, I do recommend that you actually use all the tools and do the energy work and really um, at least reread that section to see if how maybe it can apply to you. And if you haven't read the book, read the book because there's a lot of cool, crazy stuff in there. Okay, okay. And then you can join us for the free workshop on the five tools. Oh my God. Um, all right, all right. We are winding down here, but I do want to share with you the two TV shows that I've been watching during quarantine. The first one, and this is going to become the gift that keeps on giving, is The Real Housewives of Orange County. Now, I don't know if you care about Bravo TV, but if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I love Bravo TV. And I love The Real Housewives of New York City and Beverly Hills, but those are the only two, and Dallas. Those are the only three that I watch. But The Real Housewives of Orange County was the first franchise, and so I felt like I, first of all, it has, it's the longest running one. So there are the most episodes to watch, but it also, it started back in 2006, which is when I was a senior in high school and a freshman in college. And it was before the show knew what it was. It was before the show knew that it was going to blow up. It's before the show knew that it was going to have a million different franchises in different cities. And so the show doesn't really know what it is yet. I'm only just ended season two. Um, and it is so janky. It is so, I just can't even believe it. The sh- oh, First of all, it's kind of boring because the show doesn't, like it hasn't figured itself out yet and there's like way too much focus on the children. Um, But it's also back in 2006 with those clothes. Like I look at those clothes and it literally reminds me of dieting because those were the clothes that I was wearing and buying and like hating myself in and like judging my body in and dieting in. And it's so weird. Like it's so, it's so weird to have the show be so dated and to like remind me of such a weird time in my life too. Um, 
But, okay, so just last night I took a little break from watching The Real Housewives of Orange County and I decided to keep up with the world and watch on Netflix Tiger King. And let me tell you, it is so, so strange. But it has so many things that that I am obsessed with, like cults, cult mentality, and just basically like true crime it's really bizarre I mean it's really bizarre I actually started listening to I forget who did it but there was a podcast called Joe Exotic I think it was like one of those true crime like maybe from Wondery or something I should look it up just so I get this right but they had I'm gonna look it up Joe Exotic uh, podcast uh oh yeah Oh yeah. Okay. So there's this, there's a, there's a wondery podcast called over my dead body. And I forget what the other season was. They had a season that I really, really liked. What was it over my dead body? It was some true crime thing, but then the updated one was Joe exotic. And I started to listen to it and I just was like, I was bored, but this TV show, not boring. I highly recommend it. It's just as janky (laughs) from one crazy janky show to the next. It is bizarre that I'm really enjoying it. Molly is really enjoying it. She she watches it. There are lots of animals for her to watch. Really freaky. Someone gets their arm bitten off. It is so weird. Someone is maybe fed to the tigers. It is crazy. It is like a feud. Like a feud of of the privately owned tiger tiger zoos I can't even explain it you just have to watch it okay and I can't vouch for the whole thing but I can vouch for the first two episodes really really good all right my friends if you like this podcast I'm going to help other people find it um please rate and review five stars on iTunes it really does help Just a reminder that I have monthly goodies, archived content, archived podcast episodes, archived Q&As from past programs, etc., etc., over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Caroline Dooner for $10 a month. And just another reminder that if you want to be sent the workshop that's focusing on the five tools and answering reader questions, you can go sign up for it at thefuckadiet.com slash resources. You will also be sent other book bonus resources. If you have not read the book yet, this is not geared towards you, so I just recommend that you read or listen to the book first. But yes, if you would like to get in on this free workshop and you've read the book, please go to thefuckadiet.com slash resources, sign up, and we'll be friends forever. Okay. Thank you for listening. I hope you're doing okay in quarantine. And I will be back next week if I don't like lose my mind first, because I think at least for the next month, I'm going to do weekly episodes, even though I'm already feeling overwhelmed. Uh, I made a promise and I shan't be going back on it. Okay. Goodbye.